The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. everybody and welcome to this uh, wonderful uh, event um, beyond 2022 research showcase unlocking the archives part one hidden voices um, it's a packed zoom room and I'm delighted to welcome everybody in the zoom room but also those of you who are joining us on facebook uh, from uh, across ireland uh, europe uh, but around the world we have attendees in Australia, the United States, and uh, it's fantastic. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities at Trinity College Dublin. And the Hub is delighted to be partnering with the Beyond 2022 team for this very important uh, day. Uh, this is the first of two events marking the anniversary of the terrible fire of 1922, which occurred this day 98 years ago at the Four Courts in Dublin. This evening at 7.30, I'll be hosting an evening panel discussion featuring a distinguished guests, Orla McBride, the new director of the National Archives, and Professor Guy Biner from Ben-Gurion University, who's also the Burns Scholar at Boston College. But this lunchtime is a showcase for the Beyond 2022 research team itself and its international partners. Beyond 2022 was established back in 2016 with competitive research funding from the Irish Research Council, which I'm very privileged to be the chair of. And it was then awarded two and a half million euro from the Irish government under the Project Ireland 2040, which was announced in Dublin Castle last year by our then Taoiseach, uh, 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 Leo Varadkar. We're very grateful for the support of the outgoing Minister for Culture, Josefa Madigan, and her officials in the Department of Culture, uh, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. And we look forward to working closely with the new Minister, uh, uh, Catherine Martin. We're also very appreciative of the ongoing support of the Taoiseach's office and the Tornishta's office in this collaborative uh, uh, enterprise. I'll hand over in a moment to Peter Crooks, who is a very distinguished medievalist and my colleague in the Department of History. He's also the director of Beyond 2022. Now, Peter's vision for this project dates back over a decade now and I really want to commend him on the leadership that he has shown uh, also with our much loved uh, uh, dear colleague uh, Shay Lawless who passed away sadly this time last year but Peter has continued uh, the project and as I say shown phenomenal vision and leadership so I'll hand over to Peter in a moment I do want to say a few words though about the format of the evening. Uh, we are hoping we'll, or for the lunchtime, sorry. Uh, uh, we're hoping uh, that we'll have a few uh, minutes at the end for Q&A. So please feel free to use the Q&A uh, function, which is at the bottom of your screen. And just to say, if we don't get to the questions, 
the uh, team will respond to you uh, directly. Um, uh, we are recording uh, this session, so it means you can listen uh, uh, back to it. Um, before turning uh, to Peter, we'd like to give you a taster of what Beyond 2022 will be revealing in full at this evening's uh, uh, session. So here's a very short video just to mark uh, uh, the fire. So here's to the video and then over to Peter. Dublin, June 30th, 1922. Day three of the Battle of the Four Courts, the opening engagement of the Irish Civil War. Shortly after noon, the city is shaken by a huge explosion. After the blast, fire takes hold and plumes of white smoke are seen billowing from an arcade of tall windows in a corner of the Four Courts complex. This is the Record Treasury of Ireland's Public Record Office. Irish history, dating back over 700 years, is on fire. Inside the Record Treasury, the intense heat melts the high ironwork galleries and shelving, casting paper and parchment records into the flames below. Miraculously, one part of the building survives almost intact, except for a blast hole in the side wall. The record house, and at its heart, the handsome search room where researchers pored over historical documents had escaped the worst of the damage. Now, supported by the Government of Ireland, the Beyond 2022 project is reconstructing the search room in virtual reality. Here, readers in 1922 conducted their research beneath the natural light of a beautiful glazed ceiling. And for the first time in a century, we can reopen the double doors that led to the record treasury. Thank you, Jane. Uh, thank you, Jane, and uh, a very warm welcome to our online audience, our panelists, our partners and supporters. Uh, my name is Peter Crooks from the Department of History in Trinity, and it's my privilege to be the uh, director of Beyond 2022. Just to reiterate uh, what Jane said, we are enormously appreciative of the support of the government under Project Ireland 2040, which has made this possible as well as the generosity of other donors who I'd like to mention quickly, uh, William and Pamela Lowe, an anonymous foundation who have enabled us to extend further our core research. And it's really that research that we want to showcase for you this lunchtime. As Jane says, today is a key milestone for this project. June 30th, 2020, today, means we are two years away from the centenary of the Four Courts blaze. At exactly this time, 98 years ago, the Public Record Office was on fire. It also means that it's been just over 100 days since we all entered uh, lockdown and three months since the Beyond 2022 research team last saw each other in person. So it's been a very interesting but intense and exciting uh, uh, last 12 weeks. And very shortly after lockdown uh, was announced, we came up with the idea of unlocking the archives and it was intended as a suite of activities online leading up towards this culminating moment marking the 98th anniversary of the Four Courts Blaze. Across the last eight weeks, uh, Dr. Kieran Wallace, uh, my 
colleague and deputy director of the project, has been masterminding an absolutely superb online collaborative uh, exhibition, really, of our research. And I'd encourage you to visit our website, beyond2022.ie, to find out more. Every member of our research team has been contributing, as well as our partners who are in Belfast, in London, in Dublin. And the stories take us all the way from the great flu of the early 19th century. You can't imagine how we hit on that particular topic. Why did we think of pandemic? The censuses of the early 19th century, all the way back to my own period, uh, 700, 750 even years ago to the earliest records that were in the record treasury uh, in 1922, the records of Christchurch Cathedral, the earliest one is 1174. And interwoven through that are, are uh, articles on knowledge graph technologies, entity linking, the squabbles of 19th century archivists and public intellectuals. We don't have anything like that nowadays with our archival partners. So this is a real sense of the vibrancy and the excitement of the research team. And we're also offering you today on our website, a sort of tasting menu of the fruits that are emerging from this archival partnership. If you visit the explore page of our website, you'll see a new collection uh, just as a sample it's called the Dublin Gazette. It's the record of official Ireland from the 18th century, actually right up to the present. And no single library holds a complete run of this collection. But through Beyond 2022, across the next two years, as an example, we will be bringing together digitized materials from multiple archives to bring that collection back together. And currently we have issues from the Oireachtas Library, the National Library of Ireland, King's Inns Library, and across the Atlantic, the Free Company of Philadelphia. So this, I hope, gives you a sense of the power of a collective framework. And this is what Unlocking the Archives is about today. It really means two things. First, it signals our collective commitment to unlock the archives during lockdown in the sense of sharing the latest discoveries from our digital collections with you online. And it also refers to the digital potential of the project, the power of technology to unlock the data within the virtual archive. So today we are unveiling for the first time the virtual search room. That's what the video that you just showed uh, um, uh, uh, shows you. And tonight, I hope you'll join us again tonight when we'll be revealing how in 2022, on the centenary of the fire, you will be able to enter through the front door of that virtual building, the public record office, and experience an entirely uh, novel way to explore, connect, and discover the past. So this leads me to today's research showcase which celebrates this collective vision, transcending sectors and disciplines. The event is divided uh, into three parts, three movements, and there's a progression across the three movements uh, from, if you imagine, the least refined materials, literally the raw materials salvaged from the fire in 1922. That's at one end of the spectrum. And then at the far end of the hour, we get to the most refined, the most distilled, the most structured form of information management being developed by the project. So to begin, I'll pass to um, two very close friends and colleagues for the first segment and introduce to you uh, Zoe Reed. Uh, any of you who follow Twitter will have seen the absolutely captivating images that Zoe has been sharing across the last couple of years of the 1922 South records. So we're privileged that she can join us today. National Archives Ireland is uh, a core partner, of course, in Beyond 2022 as the successor institution to the Public Record Office. But Zoe is speaking to us today in a conversation with Dr. Paul Drybra, 
Senior Medieval Records Specialist at the National Archives UK, another of our core partners. So to speak about Saved from the Fire, the 1922 Salved Records Collection, Zoe and Paul. Thanks, Peter. Um, so I'm getting to start at the salvage. And so what really interests me is what happens with um, the documents after the fire. And so this, the, the, after the destruction of the site, work began on the 17th of July, um, 1922. And that's when staff first went into the rubble and started to extract um, what they could identify as documents from the um, from the destructed site. And that process went on for about 12 months. It went on to the 8th of June, 1923. Um, and it seems to have been a process whereby the Public Record Office staff um, located things. They moved them to a room. They got a room in the Record Office in Dublin Castle. Um, and that's where they took them and they brushed them down and they identified them and they wrapped them in brown paper parcels. Um, and if we could have the first slide, yeah. Um, and this is an example of one of the parcels. Um, and they secured them a string and they labelled everything. And I always think it must have been a hugely, um, a really difficult, difficult job for the staff, um, quite upsetting, quite distressing for them to, to see this. And there's a quote from the 56th Deputy Keeper's report where James Morrissey notes that it was very tedious and very difficult work. Yet I'm always struck by the care that was taken by the staff. Um, these were neat parcels um, and they did the job that they were intended to do. They protected the contents. They kept the material safe and secure inside and I suppose waiting for somebody like me to come along. Um, and I suppose we were in the really fortunate position in 2017 where we received external funding from the Irish Manuscripts Commission and that money was to carry out a survey of these parcels and that had never been done before and the, the parcels had pretty much remained unopened for the intervening 95 years. Um, and the scope of the survey was to open up the 1922 parcels and to comprehensively identify and list and look at um, and document what was inside the parcels. And that's what the, the team did. Um, and some parcels, when we opened them up, they contained other parcels. And some parcels, when we opened them up, they only contained maybe one page, um, or they might have contained a huge, large vellum roll, um, which contained a couple of hundred sheets. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that the contents of no two parcels were the same. Um, and in total, um, 378 parcels were surveyed. Everything was documented, everything was photographed, and everything was also given a numerical value depending on its condition. Um, but one thing that strikes me from a conservator's perspective is the condition of the documents. There were some records that looked like they were written yesterday and others um, that were charred wills that looked like they could have come from the um, sort of the grate of a fire. And there's a little bit of detective work to do around the material that was in good condition. What we were beginning to suspect is these were the items that were actually in the strong room of the record house. So they weren't in the record treasury um, building that was destroyed. This means that these are potentially the documents researchers were using um, or consulting or else the staff have been working on and um, don't forget the anti-treaty forces took possession of the building on the night of uh, the 13th of April. It was a Thursday, the next day was Good Friday and the public record office would have been operating uh, as normal that day um, and just 
as I mentioned in the search room, this is one thing that we didn't expect to find, but is an absolute um, gem of an item. It's actually um, a sign from the search room um, telling researchers at the time where certain indexes, so these are files in bankruptcy. So it tells them where to find them, what press, where these files are located and the dates. Um, and I think it's a fantastic example of, you know, the contemporary find, finding aid um, at the time. It's in pretty good condition. It's cardboard and paper and um, it still has the pink legal tape that was used as a hanging mechanism and uh, it's not been conserved yet. But it's um, pretty robust and looking great. Whilst I'd like to talk about absolutely everything, um, we can't. So what we decided we'd focus on for today's presentation is very much some of the earliest records to survive the fire. Um, and again, to look at the extremes of the condition that we found them in. But just to say, the majority of the documents um, that did survive were obviously on parchment. And the reason I say obviously is that doesn't come as a surprise for me as somebody who understands materials. Um, parchment, which is animal skin, is incredibly robust. Um, in fact, that's why it was always chosen for writing legal documents on. And if I can get you to imagine what it might have been like for the documents in the fire, the fire would have essentially been like an oven. It would have almost baked the documents. And so in drying out the moisture from the skin, um, the, the skin itself would have changed and distorted and shrunk in places. And that's what we see in some of the, um, the, the remains that we have today. Um, basically, you can see where they're distorted um, and they've lost their ability to be opened or rolled out. Um, and we can definitely see there's evidence of charring and we can see that in some cases, the rest of the roll has been burnt away and we're just left with um, sections of a document. Um, and if we go to the next slide, we can great example of that. So this is a fragment from what would have been a much larger roll. Um, it's, it's new reference number is CB1 bar four, it's from the common bench. Um, and this is what it looked like when we pretty much unwrapped it from one of those parcels. It's had the loose, loose particles of dust and dirt brushed off it. It's undergone some more surface cleaning from a conservation point of view. But you can see the pile of, well, there's actually five um, fragments there all piled up on top of one another. And when we saw it, we initially thought, oh, they're all blocked together. It's a term we use for when they're stuck. Um, and we thought it would be tricky to separate them, but actually, um, I found I was able to lift them off each other um, very carefully and very gently and manipulate them and end up with five small separate fragments. Um, and then we knew obviously they were really difficult for somebody to read looking like this. So it's a case of me coming along with some conservation techniques to do some more work on them. So what I use is um, a treatment called humidification where I'm trying to get moisture back into the skin. So you heard me talk about the skin being baked in the fire and then we're looking at it trying to, to get moisture back into it to make it flexible so it, it's not so brittle so I can start to manipulate and move it. And I've got a fantastic bit of kit in conservation in the National Archives, um, which essentially I can create a cool fog. And I've got this large perspex dome and I can put my pieces of vellum in that and they can sit and almost have a little mini sauna as such moisture comes back into the documents and then I can very slowly and gently start to manipulate them and what I do is I then whilst they're drying and I've got them unfolded I hold them in place with magnets and if we go to the next slide thanks we can see the results of that very top sheet and there you go um, and suddenly you've got something whereby you can read it. Now the difficulty is I actually can't read it. So that's where I hand over to Paul and he comes in and uses his expertise. 
Thank, thanks, Zoe. Hi, everyone. Uh, so obviously, I'll confess that this is pretty daunting and exciting when I saw what Zoe had been able to do with such terribly damaged documents. And I don't think any of us interested in the content of the records should ever lose sight of the tremendous skills, knowledge and patience of conservators or of the, um, the potential of collaboration between archive professionals and researchers to open up access to our history and balance that um, access with our mutual duty to ensure archives can be used for many generations to come. So as Zoe says, what we've got here is a fragment of the plea roll of the Common Bench from 1398. So the Common Bench is the principal court in Ireland dealing with what you might call civil offences, things like debt, the seizure and withholding of goods, breach of contract, minor episodes of violence. Now in the image you, you can see, we've got a plea pitting one Robert Gardner and a woman called Clarissia, who I think is the widow of a merchant whose surname is Waite, against one David, son of Richard. Now, Robert and Clarissia are claiming a debt of £9, 16 shillings and fourpence that David's promised to pay, but unjustly, they say, detained. Now, this would have been enough to buy around seven horses or 16 cows at the time, or even, difficult to believe I know, cover the wages of a skilled tradesman for about 18 months. So not a trifling amount. One thing to note is if you look at the very top left margin of the image, is that this case comes from Cork, which was at a time when the extent of English lordship in Ireland had significantly shrunk from its high watermark in the late 13th century. And on the same fragment is another case from Wexford, but the vast majority of pleas concern the city and county of Dublin, Meath and Kildare. Now, just to give you an example, so one of the examples entries, the Prior of Kilmainham, the main house of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem in Ireland, the Knights Hospitaller, is accused of having cut down and stolen the trees of one John Bateman, who I'm sure, not coincidentally, happens to be a keeper of the records of the very same common bench. Now they're all so damaged that making sense of most of the entries is difficult, but a really important aspect of what Zoe's been able to do is to allow the wider Beyond 2022 project team to increase the number of examples of personal names and the links between people across lots of record sets that will populate the knowledge graph an amazing new resource which Lynn and Christoph are going to demonstrate in a few minutes. So I'm going to now hand back to Zoe again, who's going to talk to you about another type of challenge in dealing with the medieval records which survived the fire. Thanks, Paul. And I love the fact that you could identify the word cork on that tiny fragment. Could we move on to the next slide? You'll see in sharp um, contrast um, to that fragment, this role. Um, and this is a parchment roll, this is EX1 bar 2, um, and it still functions exactly like it did in the 14th century. The parchment is flexible and can be handled. The ink is clear and the script is incredibly um, legible, but it's large. It's awkward to use um, because of its size and its format, yet its age and its significance means that it does need to be handled carefully. Um, in terms of conservation challenges, for me, this is actually pretty straightforward. Um, I don't have to do too much to ensure that people um, can access this role or that it can survive. One thing I can do, um, though, is to push to get this document digitised. Um, and by doing that, more people can have access to it and we reduce the risk of um, handling of the role. The irony is that the parchment roll will probably still in another 200 years be able to be used and read as it is. May not be the same thing for the digital images. They may not last 200 years. But again, I'm going to jump back to Paul and ask him to tell us a bit more about the roll itself and what it says. 
Well, you've got slightly lucky because this is actually my favourite document in the entire collection of National Archives of Ireland. So it's what we call a memoranda roll. And effectively, it's long sheets of parchment called rotulates, which are sewn at the top of the head and used a bit like you would a flip chart today. Although don't watch Zoe doing you that, don't see her do that. Now it's written in abbreviated Latin and records the daily business of the Dublin Exchequer, which is the main office that dealt with the King's finances in medieval Ireland. It's 700 years old, so it dates to 1319-20 and gives us real insights into everyday life across an island which was recovering from the devastating effects of not only a famine that had struck Western Europe for three years previously, but also of a three-year invasion by Scottish army under Edward, the younger brother of King Robert Bruce. Now, memoranda rolls are full of information. And this role, for instance, includes details of the negotiations around an unpayable penalty of £10,000 imposed upon the Dubliners for burning the suburbs of their city in 1317 to prevent the Scots attacking. Now, for me, probably the most tragic thing about this role is that it's such a lonely survivor. Only one other medieval memoranda role and so few other original exchequer documents from the era survives. But if we can move to the next image, you will see, hopefully here, in this early 15th century drawing of the Irish exchequer, you'll see a memoranda roll being written by the scribe wielding his quill in the centre at the top. And this image comes from what's known as the Red Book, which is kind of a compendium of transcripts of statutes, oaths of officers, practical exemplars for exchequer officials in conducting their duties. Now this precious drawing, which was also sadly lost in the fire, but its existence had been preserved by several Victorian antiquarians, shows the medieval exchequer at work. Now it shows an account being processed and the various officials around the table carrying out their duties. You can also at the front see um, money being counted out on the checkered cloth and various other documents being written. In the sort of at the back at the centre of the on the table you can even see a leather pouch in which records would have been stored for transporting to England. And this is, a, is key to one of the gold seam strands of the Beyond 2022 project in which we'll be able to reconstruct to actual entry level, an important part of the Exchequer archive. Now, as I say, virtually all of the documentary production of the Irish, medieval Irish Exchequer was lost in or in the centuries before 1922. However, due to a series of financial scandals involving prominent royal ministers, from 1293, each treasurer had to have his accounts audited at the Westminster Exchequer. And if you look at the Exchequer image, you can see the senior officials of the Exchequer with their backs to us conducting the account. Now, several treasurers fell foul of royal administration, one of whom, Alexander Bolscott, you're going to hear about shortly. Now, in the normal course of Exchequer business, the roles on which receipts and payments were recorded were copied out in triplicate, and two of those copies were sent to England for audit. The National Archives of the United Kingdom has digitised the entire collection as part of the Bond 2022 project. And with associated orders and other documentation, it consists of around 450 items and more than 3,500 individual pieces of parchment, whether in roll or single sheet format. So in a very rough estimate, these records might contain about 100,000 entries relating to medieval Ireland and perhaps around a half a million data points, things like personal names, place names, subjects, dates and financial information. A team of editors based in Dublin and London will be translating the receipt rolls and digitally encoding them, as well as encoding data from the issue rolls, which were published by the much-missed Philomena Connolly and the Irish Manuscripts Commission in 1998. Now, this really is an international collaboration, and as a representative of one of the project's international partners, it's fantastic that the National Archives UK is able to contribute to and share in the creation 
and repopulation of the virtual record treasury. So I'm going to hand you back to Zoe now to talk about some of the technical wizardry at her disposal in dealing with one of the most damaged documents of the 1922 fire, another memorandum all, but this time from the 17th century. Okay, if we move on to the next slide, thanks. And this is our last slide. And here you can see an example of something that's very much um, burnt. And it's the wooden dowel is what you're looking at in the center. And you can see the layers of um, skin and how difficult it's going to be to try and unwrap or unroll those. So what, we, what we can do and what we can use at our hands is um, the clever conservation scientists. and. For something like this where we know that the skin itself has darkened due to the fire and the text, the ink would still be there, but difficult for us to see with the naked eye. What we can do is we can get those um, pages um, imaged in different wavelengths, light wavelengths, and then on the digital um, image, hopefully we'll be able to enhance it and be able to see um, the text coming up. And that's using a technique called multispectral imaging. Um, the other scientific technique that we're hoping might be really useful for us is if I can't unroll it, I'd say I'll have some success. Those outer layers I'll be able to unroll and humidify and get flat, but those inner core ones I, I may not be able to do. And there's a really new, um, innovative and exciting technique called X-ray tomography. And at a very basic level, because I'm not a computer scientist, so apologies to anybody in the audience who is, um, what they will do is they will X-ray the, the roll and the fused roll together and then using computer algorithms they'll make up a computer program that will do a virtual unwrapping of that roll and hopefully identify and be able to distinguish between where the ink is written and the skin and therefore again people like Paul again um, and Peter will be able to start um, having access to text that we just didn't think was possible before. Um, but there are lots of experts in the Beyond 2022 project, and I'm really looking forward to hearing some of the, the others um, present on their work and find out what they're doing. So thanks, Kehoe. Brilliant. And you're exactly on time. Absolutely wonderful. So thank you very much, both of you. Um, if you want to see more of the amazing images, because these are sort of artifactually fascinating as well, if you go to our website, the gallery section has a new a visual story called Follow the Money, and uh, it has uh, images from these medieval collections, including absolutely amazingly the, excuse me, the bags that the records were carried from Dublin to Westminster, the leather pouches, they were actually pictured on the, uh, the Red Book of the Exchequer image that Paul showed you there, the bag was sitting on the table. Well, the very bag still surviving in Westminster and that sort of material culture element of the project is showcased on our website under follow the money in the gallery section. So thank you so much for that. You heard Zoe say that the forecourts was occupied on April the 13th, 1922, and there were readers in the building consulting records that day. And that meant that those records stayed in the strong room at the front of the building and they are some of the few that survived the fire. Well, with that sort of in mind, we asked two of the newest members of our team, uh, probably the most difficult question of all, which is, if you had been there in 1922, what would you have saved from the flames? Uh, or at the very least, what would be the thing that you would have been consulting on Thursday the 13th of April 1922 that connects with your specialist interests? So it's a huge pleasure for me to introduce to you two early modern historians who have recently joined the project team their um, participation also nicely illustrates something about the way we've set up Beyond 2022 as a collaborative framework. Uh, Dr. Sarah Hendricks 
is the postdoctoral research fellow engaged in archival discovery in uh, the UK and is embedded in the National Archives UK in London. And Dr. Tim Murta similarly is a postdoc research fellow, but based with another of our core partners, uh, these genetically linked public record offices, this one, the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, and based in Belfast. So over to you, uh, Sarah and Tim, what would you say from the flames? Thank you so much, Peter. It really is such a difficult question. Uh, looking through what we've lost in Woods Guide and the Deputy Keepers reports, every day something new you stumble across that you think this would be such a magnificent thing to be able to consult once again. Um, as Peter said, um, I'm an early modern historian and I have a particular interest in architectural history and sociocultural history. Um, and actually seeing Zoe's presentation was marvellous, having previously worked as uh, on the Burnt Library from Herculaneum in restoring Latin and Greek texts. So uh, those charred bits of paper seem very familiar, but um, it's lovely to be involved in a similar project once again, but this time in, uh, in finding some of the documents to actually put back on the shelves. Um, but to this question of what I would say, and I think uh, to pick something, I'd have to start with the correspondence of Joshua Dawson. Uh, Dawson was a government official and a property developer who was born in around 1660 and died in 1725. So he was working and living in Dublin during a period of profound change, both for the city and its people. And I find him particularly interesting as he had great influence, not only within the administration of Dublin Castle, but also on the development of the city itself. Um, in his professional life, he held numerous offices in the administration, including Chief Clerk or Undersecretary in the Chief Secretary's Office, a Clerk of the Paper Office and Controller of Customs for Droida. Uh, separate to this, he was also a property developer who shaped the urban landscape of Dublin. And in fact, he first developed the land between Trinity College and St Stephen's Green, uh, giving it the grid pattern still in use today. Uh, he also built the Mansion House on Dawson Street, which originally operated as his own residence before being purchased for the use of the Lord Mayor. And so although the Public Record Office contained plenty of correspondence from all sorts of people and places, I'd first choose to save that of Joshua Dawson for the glimpses he provides into both the architectural development of Dublin, both within and outside the castle complex, and also for the social and cultural quirks of its inhabitants. And so how do we know that uh, this would have been contained in this correspondence, um, given that we've lost so much of it? Um, we're very fortunate that when it was ingested into the public record office, small descriptions and select quotations uh, from some of the letters were included in the deputy keepers reports, which do survive. And so through the reports, we can get a sense of the character and the richness of the letters and just how diverse they were in their subject matter. Uh, so some of what we can glimpse shows that Dawson wrote and received correspondence about all sorts of things, including the growth of the south side of the city and its rise as a fashionable quarter. This was due in part, of course, to his own efforts in uh, developing the city. Um, he discussed the building of bridges to better connect the north and south sides. Uh, he also talked about building private homes, including one built by Vanbrugh and various architectural styles. Uh, he mentions the delivery of Irish black marble to be used for the construction of St. Paul's Cathedral. 
and on more than one occasion, uh, he talks about the buildings and the building program of Dublin Castle, providing information about the process of selecting a site and giving an account of how the buildings were used that we otherwise cannot glean either from the buildings themselves or the other records that do remain. So, for example, he describes the accommodation of the Chief Secretary's office in the castle, and he puts forward his own arguments. We don't know if the Surveyor General at the time agreed or not, but Dawson had his own theories on where to build new structures within the castle, both for the Treasury Building and other officers, including the Auditor General, Commissary General, Register of Deeds and the Barrack Board. But aside from architectural discussions, Dawson's correspondence has a whole host of other references. Um, these include news of international politics and, and events, including the Scottish Acts of Union in 1707. Uh, there's pieces of gossip about the aristocracy and local conspiracy theories. Uh, there's a report of an assassination attempt on Mr. Harley, who was the Lord High Treasurer. And he also presents his own views on Irish revenue matters, including the purchase of new trumpets and kettle drums for the coronation of Queen Anne. But some of my favourite mentions that come up are some of the social history aspects. Um, Dawson informs us that the best paper can be found locally in Ireland, but for sealing wax, that ought to be ordered from London and the best quills are to be had from Holland. Um, he also receives numerous requests from friends and seems that Dawson was quite good at uh, sourcing harder to find objects, shall we say. Uh, so one of them includes a pair of moose deer's horns for the new Elector Palatine in residence. And he has other friends who ask him how they can possibly obtain French wine and ask him to please send some local whiskey to England and even as far afield as friends in Denmark. And as a side note, if I happened to see it and had a spare arm as I fled the flames, I would also pocket the wine warrants for the 17th century, as I think they'd give a fascinating picture of what was being consumed, where it was coming from, who was buying and shipping it. A lot can be discerned about a city or indeed a country's socio-cultural life through its drinking habits. Um, these glimpses, though, are enough to show that Dawson's correspondence was rich in detail about both the social and cultural lives of Dubliners in the early 18th century, and they provide so much context and backstory for the architecture that we still see in Dublin today. First-hand accounts of this type are highly valued as source material, and to have more of it would fill out the historical record for this period considerably. Um, and thankfully, there's hope that we'll find it. Um, the detective work involved in tracking down replacements can be frustrating, but also exhilarating. Um, as I mentioned, we have the quotations and summaries in the Deputy Keeper's reports, and there's a very real possibility of finding more of Dawson's correspondence elsewhere. Uh, the selection that made their way into the Lord office was part of a larger collection of papers and documents owned by Thomas Phillips, who was a collector and bibliophile, and his library was put up for auction and a number of lots, including some of the correspondence, uh, was purchased for the record office at a Sotheby's sale. Uh, but other parts of the collection have made their way into various other repositories around the world, including the National Archives in London, where I'm based. And just yesterday, I found a case of Dawson's correspondence held at the University of Cambridge. So I'm pleased to say the future looks bright for tracking down and putting back on the virtual shelves some of what was lost 98 years ago today. And hopefully we'll find some interesting stories along the way. 
Um, but of course, I'm not the only research fellow on the project. Um, and I know Tim has plenty of other things. I'd like to think if we were both there on that day together, we'd uh, have a nice assortment of material amongst us. Um, but I'll leave him to tell you about his choice picks. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you for that introduction. Yes, indeed. I think we probably would have a quite interesting selection if we were sort of there together. Um, now, the item I would say from the fire personally is a, a rather bland sounding item, but it's actually quite intriguing. It was a series called the Miscellaneous Civil Correspondence from the Chief Secretary's Office. Uh, and again, it's a collection that relates mainly to the 18th century. Now, Sarah's talked about how Dublin Castle was rebuilt and expanded, partly with Dawson's input. Um, I'm quite interested in actually what was going on inside the castle, uh, particularly the business of government and who oversaw it, uh, particularly one office, the Chief Secretary's Office, which coordinated all the various uh, administrative departments within Dublin Castle, and also coordinated back with the central government in London. This is a single office uh, that was responsible for an awful lot, including one very intriguing responsibility, gathering intelligence about what was called the state of the country. It's a very pointed phrase. The state of the country meant the security situation, threat of internal disaffection and disturbance. And while 18th century Ireland is sometimes seen in the popular memory as a period of sort of relative calm, you know, at least compared to the 17th century, uh, throughout it, there were persist persistent fears about rebellion and possible foreign invasion, with sort of multiple public uh, security scare scares almost every decade. And in response to these fears, uh, Dublin Castle regularly sought information from a sort of whole range of correspondents, um, from military generals stationed in the barracks throughout the country, from figures like Dawson, sort of public leaders, and from members of the gentry who were serving as county governors, sort of the local uh, 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 face of law and order. And all those perspectives are very interesting. An awful lot of that material has actually survived. But the perspective that those type of figures will present will inevitably be that of someone from a relatively socially elevated position. It's sort of the, the, the view from the big house, as it were. Instead, what's a lot more interesting sometimes is those slightly lower down the totem scale, uh, petty officials, um, the middling sorts, the people tasked with maintaining law and order at the very local level, uh, justices of the peace, magistrates, sheriffs, members of county grand, uh, county grand juries. And the letters from these figures, which were relayed to Dublin Castle, were classified as uh, miscellaneous civil correspondence. And the miscellaneous of the title sort of tells you something about the grab bag nature of, of this collection. Uh, in addition to correspondence from petty local officials, it also included some rambling letters from private individuals. Uh, people who, some of whom probably wrote out of a sense of public duty, but others can probably be best regarded as busybodies or cranks. Uh, people with a grudge against their neighbor, eager to denounce them as a Jacobite spy, that sort of thing. Um, yet in amongst those hysterical reports on phantom armies and shadowy plots, the government was pretty sure that there was actually some very interesting insights into the sources and nature of local disaffection. They took this material rather seriously. Again, despite the innocuous title of sort of miscellaneous correspondence, that sort of material, that collection, represents the origin of a state uh, intelligence gathering apparatus, the sort of beginning of the security services in many senses. Uh, and its destruction, therefore, of this set of correspondence robs historians of a, a potentially very intriguing uh, window into sort of official and popular mindsets in the early modern world. In fact, the only reason we sort of know about what type of material was actually in this collection, in this miscellaneous correspondence, is because one small section of it 
has in one form or another actually survived. Uh, this is a body of material that's come to be known as the Rebellion Papers, contained in the National Archives of Ireland in Bishop Street. Now, the Rebellion Papers relate exclusively to the final decade of the 18th century. Uh, they illustrate the growth of revolutionary conspiracy in the 1790s, culminating in the 1798 Rebellion, which give them their name. Now, those Rebellion Papers have a very complicated archival history. They're actually a mixture of several different series, but at its core, is a continuation of those earliest miscellaneous civil correspondence series that were destroyed. Now, the Rebellion Papers is remarkably rich. It provides everything from uh, confessions uh, to informers' reports to plans of defense for cities. Uh, it provides insight into the growth of Ireland's first Republican movement, the United Irishmen. Uh, and as such, that, that collection, the Rebellion Papers, which have survived, they've been a mainstay of historians who've worked on that period. And one result has been that they've actually sort of shaped interpretations of the 18th century. Uh, for a long time, one of the dominant interpretations of the 18th century Ireland was that it was essentially a country that was calm and stable up until the 1790s. It was an interpretation that depicted sort of uh, the 1790s as being a break. Sort of the influence of the French Revolution was a deus ex machina, which sort of uh, diverted earlier themes. And this interpretation, the earlier decades of the century had actually been defined by stability, by the power of Protestant ascendancy and oligarchy. Now, there has been other interpretations. There's a rival school of interpretation, which actually says that no, quite to the contrary, earlier decades uh, were characterized not by sort of, you know, a, a, a self-confident Protestant ruling class and sort of steady improvement, but that there were actually very deep structural tensions underneath the surface, you know, behind, the, the lovely Georgian squares of, of Dublin in the 18th century and you know the big house, there was actually some very bitter uh, uh, simmering resentment, uh, the legacy of the 18th century confiscations and conflicts. As such, a new generation of historians have gone in and tried to find sort of the equivalent of the rebellion papers from earlier periods. That sort of uh, correspondence for, at the very local level indicating the potential for discontent and potentially even rebellion. And there are some possible replacement materials. For instance, uh, sometimes you just get lucky. Um, one local official uh, by the name of Richard Hedges, was a sheriff and militia captain from the Cork Kerry borderlands, uh, his letters just happen to survive. Uh, and they're a great insight into some of the local tensions in Munster in the 1710s. Um, they provide a, a, a really good insight and they, they are preserved in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Another source, uh, are the archives of wealthy and landed families, like the Marquis of Downshire in County Down, the Earl of Shannon in Cork. Uh, these tend to be preserved in places like Prony up in Belfast or the National Library or in the National Archives. Um, they often give you an, another insight into these local officials who corresponded with them as well, and they've preser preserved sort of sets of that type of correspondence. However, another really intriguing potential replacement is the revenue service. And you might not actually think that you know, the revenue service was sort of at the, at the, uh, the centre of sort of tales of intrigue and, and intelligence gathering, but it was. In the 18th century, revenue officers were often at the frontiers of the expansion of, the, of state power. Uh, they were drawn into conflict with the local population, whether it was through suppressing illegal distilleries, capturing smugglers, or simply extracting unpopular taxes. The minutes of the revenue commissioners, which have been preserved over in the British National Archives in Kew, uh, frequently illustrate the sort of tumultuous social history of 18th century Ireland. Finally, 
There is also one other source, and it's a rather intimidating one. These are the papers, this is the correspondence that Dublin would then send on back to London. These are known colloquially as the Irish State Papers, or later on the uh, Home Office Papers, correspondence going back to sort of to, to London from Dublin officials. Often Dublin would forward on uh, copies or digests of the intelligence they were receiving. Now this is a really rich source that still exists, it's been preserved, but the problem is it's massive. It's often under-catalogued or uncatalogued, and sort of to find this sort of material, this miscellaneous civil correspondence, these informers' reports and, uh, and digests, you really have to weed it out from a, just an ocean of material. Therefore, the loss of the original documents, yes, it poses an undeniably uh, problem for historians, but as I hope to show, have I've shown, it's not an insurmountable one. With some luck and perseverance, it may be possible to recover much of what was consumed by the flames. And with that, I'd like to pass back to, to Peter. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, thank you both uh, very much indeed. I think what's so exciting when you listen to Sarah and Tim is we know that the Public Record Office, uh, established in 1867, brings together the records primarily of the state uh, in Ireland, the English state, later the British state, uh, from the medieval period and onwards. But the way they're reading the archive against the grain is exactly how uh, we would be encouraging that these records, as they're reconstructed, uh, should be understood. So bringing out the socio-cultural, the subaltern studies that are buried within the archives, that's exactly what we want to be doing. So we can anticipate not only new swathes of material coming on stream, but new historical interpretations. And that's going to be a, a, a super collaborative effort uh, involving uh, many historians into the future. The other thing, just before I move to the next segment, I wanted to pick up on was uh, Sarah's phrase of detective work. That detective work that they're currently engaged on. And I mean, uh, what a wonderful job to have for uh, a couple of years to be, uh, no, no doubt frustrating at times, but to be searching in the archives for those replacement items that can put the puzzle back together again. But detective work of that kind was already being done in the 18th century. And one of the uh, materials that we put on the website today is a manuscript donated digitally by uh, Harvard University. It's available to you now to search online that was created in the late 18th century by Charles Valencey as a means of his uh, way of ordering the past and uh, identifying manuscripts that would help him understand Irish antiquarianism. And it is for us a sort of treasure map uh, leading us to the collections that we know must be out there when we go and look for them. So please go and have a look at that. There's a superb article also been written on it by uh, Tim and Sarah's colleague in archival discovery within the project, uh, David Brown, who's based at Trinity College. Okay, I'll shift gear now and we move to the third segment. And here, as I said, we've moved from the beginning uh, with the, the raw materials coming out of the fire and moving as we go to the, towards the end of this hour to the most refined and structured forms of data and how we can unlock the information contained within the uh, records we're bringing together digitally. And this is one of the core underpinnings of the project. It's a little bit more abstract maybe than other stories that we will bring you today. But I think it's so important to start talking about it. We call it the knowledge base for Irish history. It's gonna be the means by which we structure information about persons and places. So how will you be able to investigate your locality, your family, etc. So uh, this will enable us to structure that information and it will in, in time provide an incredibly powerful tool for linking together archival collections and exploring the past across space and time. It's truly an interdisciplinary uh, conversation 
And so we have to talk to us about it, uh, Dr. Christoph de Brun from the ADAPT Center, a superb computer scientist working with uh, Dr. Lynn Kilgallen from the Department of History, medievalist, uh, and together through their collaboration, they're talking about hidden among the data, the beyond 2022 knowledge graph for Irish history. So over to Christoph and Lynn. Thanks very much, Peter. That's fun. That's great. I'll just share my screen uh, so we can get started. Um, let's make sure this works. Great. Um, so, as Peter has just said, um, Beyond 2022's Knowledge Graph for Irish History uh, is a new and very innovative method of interrogating and searching historical records uh, in Beyond 2022's collections. So for anyone interested in Irish history, the Knowledge Graph is going to be a really key element of how we can not only navigate these collections, but also enhance our understanding of the links uh, between various records, like those we've heard about already from Paul and Zoe and from uh, Sarah and Tim, um, as well as the individuals and the places and the events contained within them. Uh, a key contribution of the knowledge graph is going to be uh, providing authoritative identifiers for entities. So these are people, places, events or organizations which are mentioned in the collections uh, processed by Beyond 2022. And this provides a way for us to link knowledge about people and places across multiple collections, um, both within but also beyond the virtual record treasury um, throughout Irish history. As Peter's already said, um, Beyond 2022's Knowledge Graph is the product of very close collaboration uh, between the project's humanities team and computer science team. Uh, so today, Christoph and I want to introduce you to some of the work that's gone on behind the scenes uh, in designing the Knowledge Graph. So looking especially at how that collaboration uh, has shaped the Knowledge Graph's design uh, and its development. We'll show you some of the uh, test cases we've been working on and hopefully highlight the huge potential potential uh, of the knowledge graph and how it fits into the wider Beyond 2022 project. But firstly, I want to pass over to Christoph now, um, who'll give us an introduction to what exactly is a knowledge graph uh, and some of the concepts from computer science that underpin uh, this project. Christoph. Thank you, Lynn. Um, yeah, you can go to the next slide. Thank you. So uh, before we start, uh, some of you might not know what a knowledge graph is. So a knowledge graph is basically a set of interconnected typed entities and their relationships. And on the right hand side, you can see a snippet from our knowledge graph where there's an ent entity, um, James Audley, which likely represents a person. It does represent a person and it is typed as such. And there's an entity, Justicia of Ireland, which represents an office and the, uh, that person is related to that office because he held that position. Now those labels, the types, the relationships and so forth, they have meaning because they are provided by so-called vocabularies that establish a common understanding of a domain of discourse. Now in this project we avail of the resource description framework or RDF which is a standardized technology that allows us to create a so-called distributed knowledge graph by linking um, heterogeneous data sets. So on the right hand side you can see that we've created a link with the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that provides a description of that person as well. Now the advantage of using open web standards is that we can avail of existing tooling off the shelf uh, to explore and engage with those knowledge graphs. And on the right hand side we used a tool Ontodia to create those diagrams. Next slide please. Now 
This project has been a multidisciplinary project and we closely collaborated together. And how, you might wonder? Well, us computer scientists, we try to formalize um, a universe of discourse and so that it becomes machine readable. And we provide demos and we uh, uh, ask questions and we provide guidelines on how to properly structure information. And we present that to the historians. And hopefully through the conversations, those are sanity checked. And whenever there's a problem, the historians provide their um, examples, definitions, their subject matter expertise. And over time, we've established a common understanding about person, place, uh, periods, and whatnot. Now, in the knowledge creation pipeline, the goal is to capture the factoids gathered by the historians and make them, together with their interpretation, explicit in the knowledge graph. And in that pipeline, there are a couple of distinct challenges. A, we need appropriate tooling for the historians. They're not computer scientists. We need to transform their representations into the knowledge graph, ensuring that it's a meaningful data, uh, knowledge graph, sorry. And we also need to ensure that the knowledge is organized in such a way that it is fit for the scholarly activities of the historians and other people. And a quite key in, uh, in our exchange was sharing demos to ensure that we're on the same level. Now, um, I will hand over to my colleague, Lynn, who will talk about the first challenge. Thanks very much, Christoph. Um, okay, I will move on to our next slide. Um, so what I want to do here is basically introduce uh, to everyone the test case, uh, which we've been using to develop this schema um, for the knowledge graph that Christoph has, has been talking about. Um, and this links really nicely back into some of the material that Paul and Zoe were talking about earlier. Uh, the data that we used as a test case was drawn from the index of Philomena Connolly's Irish Exchequer Payments, uh, published by the Irish Manuscripts Commission in 1998. Um, and this source, um, just very quickly, is a published calendar of the payments made by the Irish Exchequer between 1270 and 1446. Um, these payments, as we've already seen, uh, were originally recorded on the Irish issue rolls and treasurer's accounts. So we've seen one stage in their development already um, in, the, in their creation in the original documents. Um, and now from those original manuscripts, we're seeing the same kind of information presented in a different format. Uh, one that's very familiar to historians and researchers, a published book, um, these kinds of records themselves are immensely valuable um, in their own right, um, but they're also full of exactly the kind of material that Christoph and I uh, needed to populate the knowledge graph. So names, locations, dates. Um, and I should mention as well, um, the case study that we are showing you here today is focused on the medieval exchequer records, but the schema that we've developed um, is adaptable. Um, it can be used to collect data from not just medieval records, of course, but early modern and modern sources too. And the next case study that will be used and beyond 2022 is for, uh, it will be taken from an early modern source. So in terms of the process um, that is actually being used, um, as Christoph mentioned, one of the key challenges uh, was in taking the very rich information presented in this book, uh, but transforming that into a format which Christoph could use to populate the knowledge graph. So as Christoph has already said, one thing we needed to do was design um, 
this process in a way that historians without computer science expertise could easily use, and I'm not a computer scientist at all, um, uh, but also uh, a format which can be applied to a wide range of historical sources, um, incorporating and reflecting the type of information that historians need to access uh, to do meaningful research. Um, so what we're seeing here on screen um, is a, a, an example of the spreadsheet schema that we've used, uh, which can capture the information contained in the Irish Exchequer Payments Index. Um, it's important to note um, that for historians or anyone already familiar with these kind of printed sources, a lot of the meaning contained in this data is actually implicit. Um, so historians use their specialist knowledge to make connections uh, within the text to identify, to contextualize the information contained within it. Um, but one of the challenges with these spreadsheets was making this information explicit for computer scientists. Um, we we've done this by using a set of uh, defined categories that you can see some of them in the spreadsheet. So names, date ranges, uh, occupations, social status, gender, and so on. We also needed to take into account uh, things like capturing variant spellings of names where they appear differently. This is so that we can identify where the same individuals appear in multiple records. Uh, and though we, so we have the ability to link uh, multiple sources together. Um, another important aspect from a historian's perspective was to start identifying relationships between individuals that are mentioned in the text uh, so that we can link them together in the knowledge graph. Um, and so this again was the product of a lot of collaboration between uh, the humanities team and the computer science team uh, to provide specialist uh, knowledge to one another, um, differentiating, differentiating between different types of relationships. Um, as you can see here, we have a lot of names. Um, the spreadsheet that you can see a sample of on screen contains uh, historical data on over 2000 individuals mentioned in Phil Connolly's Irish Exchequer payments. Um, so my role at this stage was to fill in the, the data manually and enrich it as much as possible. But the next challenge was for Christoph to structure and provide meaning to this data. And I'm gonna pass over to Christoph to talk us how that was achieved. Thank you. So after um, receiving uh, the output of uh, Lynn, insurmountable uh, work almost, um, it was my job to transform the contents of the spreadsheet into RDF. And on the right hand side, you can see a little figure. So how do I transform a label in a cell, Treasurer of Ireland, into something that bears more semantics? So an entity its relation to the person and its types. Now, um, the meaning comes from uh, various established vocabularies, Cyborg CRM from the cultural sector, Provo for capturing provenance information. Those are well established and they provide good abstract concepts and relations for um, our knowledge graph, but they had to be extended in our own beyond 2022 ontology so that it becomes fit for purpose. An example would be um, a marriage. While Cydox CRM does have the notion of a joining of people, it didn't have the notion of a marriage between two people. So we had to include that. Now, generating the knowledge graph from those spreadsheets, it, uh, it followed a, a certain pipeline availing of standardized technologies. We check um, Lynn's spreadsheets with CSVW, the agreements don't really matter, but we check the input. And once that is sanity checked, we transform the spreadsheets into RDF with R2RML, another standard, and then we check the RDF first on its own with Shackle to see if there are not conceptual mistakes, and then together with the already existing 
uh, factoids in our knowledge graph. And when all uh, checks are passed, we store the RDF. Now, key here is the use of the W3C recommendations facilitate the sustainability of the knowledge graph um, in this project. Next slide, please. A second challenge is the knowledge organization. In our conversation, uh, conversations, it became apparent that we have to support various use cases, various uh, uh, challenges within the field of uh, history and so forth. And uh, so and one of them is how can we actually deal with um, seemingly conflicted factoids? Lynn has now analyzed a corpus and she transcribed lots of information in a spreadsheet. Somebody else might do the same exercise on a different book or using a different technique and there might be conflicting information. Well, in our knowledge organization approach, we um, put them in separate so-called containers with provenance information allowing someone that uses the knowledge graph to inspect the source of a statement of a factoid, see where it comes from, and in the end also assess whether or not they want to avail of a set or the whole set uh, of factoids in the knowledge graph. This will be quite key later on if we were to avail of automatic extraction techniques where those factoids will then also be kept in a separate container. Um, with that, I pass on to you, Lynn. Thanks, Christoph. Um, this is a very exciting part of our demo um, because this is where we can actually get a chance to show you the product of all of this work behind the scenes uh, by taking a look at a demo of the knowledge graph in action. And hopefully this will show you how to, um, we can identify links between entities um, that wouldn't immediately be apparent to us or would be highly time consuming to do using traditional historical methods. So let's take a look. Oh. We've gone back. Uh, excuse me. Um, here we go. Uh, let's take a look at this quick video. So what um, we're actually seeing on screen here um, is one method of searching using the knowledge graph. And I suggested to Christoph when he was putting together this video that we search using offices. This is one way that um, we can start to link individuals. Now, one office that was very important, um, we've already seen and mentioned in the uh, earlier talks about the Exchequer was the Treasurer of Ireland. So Christoph is using Ontodia here to search for Treasurer of Ireland and already we're seeing a huge list of individuals. These are all the individuals within the Exchequer Index that are named as being Treasurers of Ireland during the medieval period. So this is already very exciting as a historian to see on screen, but we can take it to another level by searching for another office. So another hugely important office uh, in the medieval government of Ireland, the Chancellor of Ireland. Similarly, we are seeing a huge list of individuals who held that office. But more interestingly still, now what we're seeing is links start to emerge between these two groups. And actually by zooming in here, what we're seeing is four particular individuals who have been identified using the knowledge graph based on that Exchequer Index data as having held both the Chancellorship of Ireland and uh, listed as Treasurers of Ireland as well. So this is very, very exciting as a historian actually seeing those connections come out. We can take it to one further level just for the purposes of this demonstration and look for uh, the most important uh, office in the medieval government of Ireland in the absence of the King himself. And this was the Justitia of Ireland. Um, again, we're seeing a long list of individuals who held this office um, and we can see all of those represented on, 
on the screen here, we can see that some uh, treasurers of Ireland also held the justiciarship. We can see that some chancellors also held it. And we've just come down to one particular individual, Alexander Balscott, who has been identified using the knowledge graph as having held all three offices. So hopefully this gives you an idea of the potential uh, of the graph to identify links that we just wouldn't really be able to see uh, in this format at all beforehand. Uh, that's only a taster of it. Christoph can talk through some more uh, uses of the knowledge graph uh, that we'll see in the future. Thank you. Um, I hope you can see that key here is we have now at our disposal a graph that we can easily um, explore, visualize, manipulate, etc., to answer questions or gain insights that would take maybe a historian um, quite more, a lot of time, seething through multiple sources or books. Now, on this example, um, uh, Lynn has already mentioned that we can reuse the schema for the spreadsheet for other periods as well and other sources, but we've also started ingesting some other types of entities, including places, monuments and whatnot. And this, is, this allows us to add a spatial, explicit spatial dimension to our knowledge graph. Here, and I've taken a tool again off the shelf called YesGUI, and YesGUI is smart enough to understand spatial data in a knowledge graph, and I queried all the castles that I'm aware of and the offices that they are related with. And that allows us to, um, uh, in a very pleasant way, to engage with the knowledge graph on a map. And on the little pop-up, you can see some of the offices, ranks and statuses affiliated to Dublin Castle. And one in particular is the keeper of works of Dublin Castle and the Exchequer. And while engaging with Lynn, while working through the demo, she indicated to me that because that title uh, mentions both Dublin Castle and the Exchequer, that could be an indication, indication that this, the two buildings were close to each other. Now, um, visual, visualizations like these does allow us to grasp the rich information in various ways. On the next slide, we have a little teaser. And um, because of the knowledge graph, it uses uh, standardized uh, representations. We can avail of SDKs, programming languages, tools, et cetera, et cetera, to explore here. And this is something that I have developed literally over a day to see how clusters uh, are, uh, to actually identify the clusters in the knowledge graph and how they behave. And nodes that are very tied together, they want to be close to one another. And that gives you an indication of which offices, for instance, were more important or held a lot more people. And people with multiple offices will also draw those offices to themselves. And uh, that concludes the teaser. Absolutely brilliant. Are, are we closing up there with that slide? I mean, that's so tantalizing. I think that um, the colleague of mine described it as a murmuration, that um, visualization that uh, Christoph puts on the screen there. But like, the, the message to take away from this particular segment of today is that they've created a framework which will be expanding across the next two years and will then be available for Irish history at large for future collaborations with other research projects, other universities and so on. So we're creating an affordance for the general uh, research community here and we're hoping to build those collaborations. So thank you both of you. Uh, Jane, will I hand back to you? Thanks very much, Peter. What a fascinating set of presentations and talk about whetting our appetite and getting us real sort of teasers uh, uh, for what is to come. You've fired up all of our imaginations about what's possible 
And what a great example of true interdisciplinarity and collaboration across so many disciplines. It's not just computer science and history here. Anyway, congratulations, Peter, to you and to the entire uh, team. There's been fabulous feedback uh, in the Zoom room, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, also, congratulations on your lovely piece in the Irish Times uh, today as oh, well. Um, I, we, we're, we're, time is not our friend. Uh, however, let's see if we can get a question or two in just very quickly um i do want to turn though to donald uh, denham who offers his congratulations on an awesome project he's wondering if there are any opportunities for volunteers peter do you want to just reflect on that very quickly also yeah. i want to know what you would have saved oh well i can answer that one quickly i would have saved the red book of the exchequer which is the one that paul showed because it, it was one of the oldest records and it had that amazing illustration, but it's full of fascinating, uh, uh, it's a compendium full of fascinating stuff. But just as an artifact, I find it totally fascinating. On volunteers, I mean, literally this morning, somebody wrote to me, and I'm afraid I don't have their name, with a, a newspaper report that they'd found that has a copy of a document that has a, a Brehan Law um, uh, judgment that was within the Public Record Office collection, and I didn't know about it. So if you know things, send it to me, the collection is so vast that within your local knowledge, you will definitely know things that we within the team don't know, or we might know a bit of the story and you'll fill it out. Um, so we're very open to that. Uh, and we love approaches, both from individuals with specialist knowledge or local historical societies or archives with whom we don't yet have a relationship. We've got a significant number beyond the core partners of uh, participating institutions, but we want to keep that growing. So I would suggest contact me and we will, uh, be very glad to hear from you. That's great, Peter. So um, obviously a lot of opportunity to collaborate far and wide. So we're going to take one question uh, uh, from Joe Rolston. Uh, again, he's congratulations. And he says, can I ask from the perspective of a family uh, history enthusiast, what records, if any, will help the average uh, family genealogist? So one there, and that keeps on coming up in the questions. The other thing yeah. is, when will, when will the project be completed? So if you can answer those two briefly, that would be fantastic. Uh, right. Okay. I'll, I'll do it in reverse order. The project, we, we obviously have a hard deadline in terms of centenary of 1922. Um, so there will be a big release on that date to mark the centenary, and there'll be a really significant corpus of material available then. However, from early in the project, we called it Beyond 2022 for a good reason. We knew that we could create a framework and a really significant corpus of material, but that within that framework, we could continue the collaboration and extend the collection. So I don't see the project finishing in, in that sense that we're creating a resource and I hope it will become a living legacy. That's what I had always imagined. In terms of um, uh, uh, local family history, the first thing to say is that what the knowledge graph and the associated information retrieval techniques being developed by ADAPT, the computer scientists, will do is enable you to explore not just specific family history collections, but across the major collections and extract from them local historical or family history information. So that's the power of the, of the, uh, the whole resource. Uh, however, there are undoubtedly very, very rich genealogical resources uh, within the collections that we're looking at and prioritizing. So part of our priority are the big state paper collections, but also genealogies. And even within the census collections, I don't want to whet the appetite too strongly or raise expectations. So much was destroyed and won't be recovered, but there is exciting discoveries to come. And all I would say is watch that space. 
All right. And listen, on that note, Peter, we're going to draw things to a close. We're sadly out of time. Anyone who asked a question, though, the team will get back to you because there are a number there and they're happy to answer them. So all I want to do now is to thank everybody for joining us for just the most amazing session. It's been fantastic. I want to uh, thank the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub, especially Francesca and Emily, but there's a whole team who makes these events run so smoothly. But above all, Peter, I think we want to uh, uh, congratulate you and your team. And before we do that, in the customary way I want to also invite the audience to come back this evening so we can continue these conversations uh, the link is in the chat function just register on zoom uh, and join us this evening uh, uh, at 7 30 but before we all leave can we join our hands in the traditional way and congratulate our panel for just a fabulous session so well done <laughs> See you later, everybody. Bye. Patras, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.